You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 through 40. I'm titling today's message, A Commendable Faith. A Commendable Faith. The author of Hebrews tells us, faith is really how the saints of the Old Testament have received their commendation. We see that in verse 2 at the beginning of chapter 11. And then we just kind of have this running list of names of saints throughout the entire Old Testament who have lived faithfully and were assured of better things to come. Last week we spoke about Moses and his faith as he led the Israelites out of Egypt. But what is commendation? What does that mean? And for this context, for what we're seeing today, it means to declare emphatically on the guarantee of an existing authority. To declare emphatically on the guarantee of an existing authority. This means then that the faith of those in the Old Testament was an insurance of the soul that says, yes, what you're believing and what it what it is that you're doing is the right thing according to God. Have you ever been in a situation or heard the words come out of your mouth and you just say to yourself, is this the right thing to do? Am, am I doing the right thing? Is what God told me really true? Is it really believable? Is it really trustworthy? And I think that's a normal human tendency for all of us. Even myself, I do that from time to time. And we are broken humans, and we're full of doubt, we're full of mistakes, full of questions, insecurities, poor judgments. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's true, and we see it all the time, these hard questions. And we honestly, at times, have very good reason to doubt a lot of things. But understand this. Faith is not something conjured up by the human will, by human effort, human ability, Faith comes about because God's Holy Spirit turns our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And when the Holy Spirit turns our hearts of stone to flesh, it is then that we can begin to clearly see, clearly believe by faith in God, what he said and what he's calling us to do. Faith assures us then that God has opened our eyes And what he says is 100% true. And what he requires or asks of us is 100% right, regardless of what happens. And so for those in the Old Testament, the author tells us that they were living their lives according to such a faith. The very faith I would describe as attributed to the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And just like us, faith reassured the saints of the Old Testament, that they were believing the right thing about God and that his word was true and what he was asking of them was the right thing to do. It was their faith in God that reassured them in their obedience. It was their faith that became a commendation in their obedient lives, even if it looked outwardly, maybe hopeless or even meaningless. And this is what I want us to see this morning. As the author wraps up this beautiful chapter in chapter 11, this great hall of faith. Chapter 11 wraps up by telling us the commendation of faith for the Old Testament saints 
is the same commendation of faith for the New Testament saints and even for us today. And so this morning, I want you to be commended in your faith. I want you to be reassured in what you believe about God's word and what it is he has told you to do. When we live our faith in a broken world, it sometimes looks silly and it sometimes seems embarrassing. I I get it. But that's because the world does not love God. The world does not think in terms of what God is doing or saying. And the world doesn't act the way that God wants them to act. The faith that you and I have in Christ is commendable no matter who you are, no matter how you look to the world, or regardless of the outcomes that it brings this side of heaven. And this is because all of our faith points to and is about not you, not me, or even our circumstances, but it is about the founder and the perfecter of our faith, of our souls. That is Jesus, the guarantee of our faith. And so we'll see today the outcomes of and even the aim of our commendable faith four different ways. First, we'll see a commendable faith can appear foolish. Secondly, we'll see a commendable faith is not always about the wins. Third, we'll see a commendable faith is not always about the losses. And fourth, a commendable faith is about the guarantor of our salvation. So first, a commendable faith can appear foolish. Read with me verses 30 and 31 of chapter 11. By faith... The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So the story of faith really falls in sequence after Moses delivers Israel out of Egypt. The next kind of great hero in the faith comes along, Joshua. And Joshua is the one who would lead Israel into the land of Canaan, into the promised land across the Jordan. And that's where we come into the story of Jericho, of Rahab. But you notice in these listing of events here in 30 and 31, the sequence of events is not really in chronological order. It's kind of backwards. We're talking about the prostitute first, and then we talk, or excuse me, talking about the walls falling down first, and then the prostitute. The spies of Jericho precedes the walls of Jericho falling down. But order of sequence is not necessarily the aim here, but the story of faith. This story highlights an appearing foolish faith, and I would say in two different ways. One, the spies are trusting the advice and the direction of a prostitute. That seems foolish. That seems outlandish. Why would you do this, right? And not just a prostitute, but a Gentile, a, somebody who's not even of the same tribe. And the second foolishness here is that the Lord chooses a marching around the city tactic with a bunch of religious people in religious garb blowing ram's horns as the means by which an entire city would fall and be destroyed. That's just kind of a a crazy way of thinking about it. So Rahab, as I mentioned, and the scripture mentions, she was a prostitute. So happy Mother's Day. Moms, tell your kids what's going on here. 
So Rahab, she offers to help and save the spies. And she does so in exchange for her life and also for her family's life to be spared. And so, you know, if you're, if you're kind of familiar with the streets a little bit and you're kind of wondering what's going on, you could think that maybe she's using her instinctive kind of street skills or survival skills to ultimately save her life and her family's life here. We could argue that she's just hustling the situation to kind of take care of herself, she and her own. But neither the story nor the author of Hebrews indicates this was a hustle or a cover-up to save her life. Rahab heard what the Lord had done for Israel on the other side of the Jordan River years for years. And unlike the city of Jericho, unlike the residents of Jericho, she believed the Lord. Jericho could have repented and not faced judgment like the rest of the land of Canaan, but there has been a clear rejection of God and his work and his word in the land of Canaan. And so this wasn't just God being mean and just taking over a land that you know, wasn't rightfully the Israelites. But for Rahab here, we hear or we see that she heard God's word and she believed. And thus, she helped the spies. And so we have Jericho then. This is the first city to be conquered by Israel when they crossed the Jordan. And their fearless leader, their faithful leader, Joshua... He's the one who's leading this whole charge. And, and if you go into the story, you see that he's at the wall of Jericho and it's, he's, he's looking down and an angel of the Lord appears to him, telling him to look up. And when he looks up, the angel then uh, gives him instruction on how the Lord will um, make Israel victorious over, over Jericho and how God will deliver them. And so Joshua believes the Lord and his word and the plan to overtake Jericho, that belief in Joshua then becomes the faithful belief of the Israelites as well. And so that's why we see in Hebrews that Israel had faith. And so they march around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, they, they blow the ram's horn at the end of their marching, and the walls fall down, and uh, Jericho is given into the hands of the Israelites. Nobody is spared except only Rahab and her family. It appears to be kind of a foolish situation because Joshua is a man of war. He, he understands how to fight. Israel had the power and the strength and even the resources because they had plundered the Egyptians to take over the people of Jericho. So it seemed foolish because even God could just snap his finger and Jericho would be done away with. But instead, God had this specific means by which he would destroy the city. And he does so kind of telling us a story that even in things that are seemingly foolish, he is not going to allow his promises or his word to return void. It's not about Israel. It's not about Joshua. It's not about Rahab or the spies. It's about God and what he wants to accomplish. You ever heard somebody tell you, hey, look, just try Jesus. Try Jesus. I mean, maybe even seen it on a bumper sticker. And it's kind of a silly statement, right? Sometimes we treat the story of, like, of Rahab like the try Jesus. You know, we, we say things like or think that maybe she just kind of rolled the dice and she just you know, said, you know what, I'll just try God in this situation because I, I want to come out alive after this is all done. And, you know, luckily for her, it worked. 
But that's not the case. That's not the case at all. Rahab had genuine, God-fearing faith. And it was genuine faith regardless of her past. It was regardless of how she was viewed by societal standards. And if you read the story of Rahab, you'll, you'll notice that God never condemns her. God never rejects her. In, in fact, she responds in faith and God brings her into his people and saves her. So I'm, I'm not calling you as a pastor to go and try Jesus today. I would never call you to do that. I would call you rather to a faith like Rahab this morning. Our community here in Northwest Springfield is a very shame-based culture in a lot of ways. We're poor. We have a lot of violence swarming all around us. A lot of domestic abuse, child abuse just runs rampant. Drugs are killing our friends left and right. We're looked at as, in some senses, the scum of the city. We're looked down upon in some ways like Rahab would be looked down upon for her occupation. And I assume... There was some shame in Rahab for her life, just as our community feels shame. But I'm asking you, Redeemer Church, to get out and to share the gospel that by faith, we see a people go from being shame-based to being free from the stains of shame and guilt. I want you to go out and find the Rahabs of our community and share with them the good news of our saving Lord. Maybe you're watching this and you have lived a life of disgrace or you have been shamed or wrong has been done to you in your life. And I would say to you today, the Lord is not calling you to remain in your shame. He's not calling you to remain in your disgrace, but he's calling you out of that by faith in Jesus. He's calling you to trust in him and he's not going to look upon you with condemnation or guilt or judgment, he's going to look upon you with the love of Christ, just like the love of God was over Rahab. And yes, not only is the gospel really scandalous enough to save the worst of sinners, if you will, it is powerful enough work to, to work through the seemingly foolish things of this world. Yes, marching around Jericho seems strange and foolish, but it revealed ultimately the power of God. God is calling you to live your life in such a way that seems foolish to the world around you, but ultimately reveals the power of God. It's okay if people don't fully understand why you attend church in a hard part of the city. It's okay if the Lord leads you to buy or rent a home in a hard part of the city. It's okay if the Lord draws you to raise children in a community where the sex offender list highlights most of the homes surrounding you. It's okay if the Lord leads you to buy a home in a community where you won't necessarily see your home appreciate in value over time. Whatever the Lord leads you to do, though it may seem foolish to the world, it is okay. And I would say it is the right thing to do. And so what has the Lord clearly called you to do that maybe you have hesitated to do because of how it would look to the world around you? And let's ask, really, who was foolish? Israel marching around the city or Jericho, who fell into the hands of seemingly religious nuts encircling their 
walls. I know there's a lot of shame with being a Christian in our city in particular, a lot of embarrassment because it is a very churched culture. But at the end of the day, are you more concerned about the opinions and thoughts of those in this city or are you concerned more about what God has called you to do? So I would say move forward today, Christian, and move forward by faith. Count the cost. It is worth it. And so Israel defeats Jericho by faith, and that's a huge win for Israel. That's something to celebrate. But really, that was not the end. And this is where we see a commendable faith is not about the wins. Verses 32 through the first part of 35. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So the author tells us, I, look, I could spend all day, all the time in the world, telling you about the faithful saints of the Old Testament, but time just won't allow. And because he is writing to a Hebrew Christian audience, he drops a few more names as examples of their faith, knowing that the audience is familiar with their stories. And so what I love about this part of the chapter is what really is not captured in the text. And so don't freak out with this. But I like to imagine that these formerly Jewish men and women who are hearing this word or reading this word, this letter from the author of Hebrews, when they get to this part in chapter 11 and they're hearing really kind of the rattling off of names of Old Testament saints, they're recalling these ancient stories from memory. Because you have to understand, back in this time, there wasn't books everywhere. People were telling the stories and they were telling stories at the dinner table, over the fire, and this was a very oral tradition. And so I can imagine the stories just kind of being retold in their minds, listening uh, to their parents tell the story, their grandparents tell the story. But unlike before, they're now seeing how all of these stories of faithful men and women from the Old Testament come into clear focus in Christ Jesus, who now is the full assurance of their faith. And so that's a beautifully rich thought in my mind. And so instead of kind of getting into every single person here and every single story, because it would be very vast, I want to share and dive a little bit into one of these stories among the names or the list of names provided. I want to talk a little bit about Barak. You might know Barak because you know Deborah, the prophetess, the judge over Israel in the book of Judges, chapters four and five. You'll notice Deborah's name is not mentioned here. Barak is recognized in this chapter as a man of faith. Now, if you recall the story, and usually the discussion that goes around this story, Barak is never really depicted as a man of faith. He's usually a man who is recognized, who did not seemingly step up to the plate, 
like he was supposed to. He, he often becomes an example for how men are not to lead in a situation. And Deborah kind of examples how men are to be in a situation. And so what we see in this story is how Deborah handles this work for him. But let's look back at the story again. If you were to jump back to chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Judges, you'll see this. Israel, again, is living in sin, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. It is not a good time for the people of Israel. They are being oppressed by their enemies, and then, just like we see in the book of Exodus, they cry out to their God for help. They cry out in anguish because their enemies are overtaking them. And so Deborah, a prophetess and judge over Israel, she responds to their cry. She took the cry of Israel then to Barak, the commander of the army, saying to him, has the Lord not commanded you to go? Telling Barak, hey, God is telling us and he's telling you that we need to go and defeat the enemies. And so at this part of the story, Barak seems to disobey by saying, really, no thanks. But then Barak sees really Deborah's faith, her confidence in the Lord, and says these words, if you will go, I will go. And then Deborah's response back to Barak was this, if you go, she's warning him, if you go, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, Barak, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And so at this point in the story is really kind of where we start to criticize Barak and consider him faithless and not a good, good example of what it means to be a man. And so granted, he, he should have said in faith, yes, I will lead the army and we will go as God has commanded, but he does not. So then how can the author of Hebrews say that this man is a man of faith? And I think this is where we, when looking into these two chapters in the book of Judges, start to see that unfold some more. Barak humbly accepted that he would not receive the glory. Deborah came back saying, this is yours. You handle this. Barak could have taken it knowing that he would be recognized as the one who got the glory for this. But that was a decision made in faith to say, I don't want this. He accepted, really, the faith of Deborah, choosing to follow her lead. Barak chose cultural shame over his own glory for the sake of God's name. And he did this by faithfully following a courageous Deborah to the battle line. And it would be then by faith that Barak would lead Israel to defeat Sisera. And notice, Deborah never scolds him. Never looks at him saying, oh, man, these men need to rise up and be men in our, in our community. Women are better than men. You don't see this kind of bickering and fighting. She never condemns him and lifts herself up. Instead, when you get to Judges chapter 5, you see both Deborah and Barak coming together, united in their faith, and they are found worshiping the Lord together. Both of them know that neither of them are the reason why Israel had victory that day. They both realized and knew that it was the Lord's doing and it was granted to them by faith. And so no, Deborah's name isn't mentioned in this book of Hebrews, 
just like the spies who came to Rahab are not mentioned in the book of Hebrews. But the point is that faith comes to those often we least expect and works itself out in ways that we least expect. And so it's through this unique work of faith that we see incredible victories won. The victory was not for the sake of Deborah's name or Barak's name, but for the sake of the Lord's name. And so the author here then shows really a range of names, a range of names, familiar names that we know from the Old Testament and really the victorious outcomes of their faith that you can find really peppered throughout the Old Testament. And one of the greatest seeming victorious outcomes of faith would be really then the miracle of the resurrection. You see here, he says in Hebrews that women were receiving their dead back. We know two times in the Old Testament that two women received the dead back. We see that with a Gentile woman in 1 Kings 17 and a Jewish woman in 2 Kings 4. The first one is with the Elijah the prophet who goes in and rises a young child back to life by faith in God. The second one we see in 2 Kings 4, similar situation. A child dies, but the prophet Elijah, the one who comes after Elijah, goes in and prays to the Lord and lays upon the kid, the kid and the kid rises from the dead. But you'll notice here in 1135 that the author kind of fleshes out this thought, showing us that even though there's resurrection, and even though that there is some suffering and torturing that will come, it is nothing in comparison to the resurrection that is to come. So yes, these women received their dead back in faith, but no, this resurrection, this side of heaven, isn't ultimately and eternally satisfying. Our society is inundated with the idea that faith equals only victories, only wins. We hear preachers tell us that our faith should lead to health, it should lead to financial success, to security, to healing, to constant really mountaintop experiences. And for those who experience anything less, they just probably don't have faith at all. And even some audaciously say those who get this coronavirus must be ones who don't have faith. This is not how the Bible sees victory. Yes, our faith at times leads to victorious outcomes. And when it does, we need to turn to the Lord and praise. However, we must never see those victories as the end, as the goal. Those victories should point us to a longing for something greater than the victory we receive this side of heaven. I mean, if you were to tap into tradition, Jesus' best friend, Lazarus, who died, and Jesus rose from him from the dead. Tradition holds that Lazarus, after he was resurrected, was depressed for the rest of his days. And he was depressed because he was brought back from a greater glory. If we, even if we're healed, even if something happens to us and we're healed, or we die and we are raised back from the dead, or given millions of dollars and seemingly in a position of greater comfort and peace, for the rest of our days, we have to remember that all of those wins or victories are telling a bigger story. Even Lazarus would die again in order to rise to a better life. 
looking at your life and seeing all the blessings and and wins around you, what sort of hope are they pointing you toward? They're telling you something. What is it? Have you been looking at the seeming victory of your faith as the end and forgetting that it it's looking towards what's ahead? Count your blessings, yes. But counting your blessings without looking to the reward that is found only in Christ Jesus is just simply looking at the blessings as the ultimate treasure and end goal of life. Do the blessings and victories you have in your life as a result of your faith in Jesus, do they place in you a greater longing for the resurrection of Christ, the eternal glory of Jesus, the treasures of Jesus? And we all know faith in Jesus does not always equals wins or victories. For some of faith, their story is much more harsher, more terrifying, more haunting, if you will. For them, it seems their faith outcomes are a seemingly lost or seeming loss. But we'll see in 35 through 38, a commendable faith is not just about the losses. So some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So the, the author drops several names when we're talking about kind of the seeming victorious outcome of faith. But then here, we don't really have a whole list of names dropped when we're talking about kind of the, the losses of outcome of faith. And again, the point is not necessarily who, but more of what and who is our faith pointing to. Looking at this list of suffering, we... We remember stories of faithful saints in the old. We remember the prophet Jeremiah. According to tradition, he was stoned to death. The prophet Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawn in two with a wooden saw. We remember in 1 Kings 19 that evil and twisted Jezebel who sought the life of Elijah and also ruthlessly murdered prophets with the sword. We remember prophets like Elijah and Elisha, who spent their days clothed in garments of hair, really as camouflage, because they were constantly being hunted. We recall these stories of old. We, we remember all of these horrific outcomes of faith. But lest we forget, our very Lord and Savior Jesus endured the torture of the cross. Even the Lord himself seemed to have a loss in his life. For his faith. And so faith points to something. It points to someone that is valuable, that is treasured, that neither life or comfort, riches or suffering or torment can deter, can deter one from longing that greater prize. Faith says to the suffering, this suffering pales in comparison to the reward that is ahead. Even for Jesus on the cross, there was a greater hope that could not be stripped away with scourging or be removed from him with mocking or driven out of him with nails. 
There's something more to our faith that not even torture could strip away. While many in our society may say faith equals victorious outcomes, we see in Scripture that is not always true. And so I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about, something that we've seen this last week. You may have seen it kind of floating around on the Internet, on Facebook. and It's an obituary written by a man named Steve Saint, who was the son of a man who was murdered by a gentleman named Minke. And this is an obituary written for Minke. And I'm going to read you portions of it. Steve says this in the obituary. He was born into a violent stone age, culture of the Amazon rainforest of eastern Ecuador, South America. Minke, whose name means wasp, died April 28, 2020, at the home in the tiny village of Zapino of natural causes related to old age. When grandfather Minke, as we affectionately knew him, helped five other Wudani warriors spear my father, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Ed McCauley to death on a river sandbar in 1956, there was no reason to believe anyone outside of his small clan and the five bereaved families would ever take note of that incident. Nevertheless, millions of people in North America and Europe followed the news. 64 long years later, it seems clear that Genesis 50 verse 20 was about to come true again. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. There has been no greater ambassador of that message than the life of Grandfather Wasp. Minke is also the main character in the feature film Into the Spear. When Into the Spear in book and movie form became available, Minke traveled around the United States, Canada, telling his life story. This is amazing jungle warrior who counted only up to 20 on his fingers and toes, personally impacted hundreds of thousands of people in audiences as large as 45,000. The movie in which his life plays the leading role has now been translated into the mother tongues of approximately one quarter of the world's population. There are people who question the motives of the five missionaries who made contact with the Wudani in 1956. There are some who question Minke's motives in participating in 10 speaking tours across the world. I have known Minke since I was a little boy when he took me under his wing and had his sons teach me to blowgun hunt. He was one of my dearest friends in the world. Yes, he killed my father, but he loved me and my family. One of my grandsons is named Minke. We will miss you, Minke, but we hold on to the certain hope that we will soon see you again. John 3.16 Seeing how faith has both wins and losses and positives and negative outcomes in life, which act would you say is more commendable? Which act of faith would you say is more commendable? That of Jim Elliott's or that of Min K? Jim, his life of faithfulness resorted in suffering and death and really not seeing the outcome of his faith. For Min K, it resorted in Um, a conversion and a life of gospel proclamation and seeing fruit be bore all over the planet. Can you see, church, the outcome of faith, even if it were to result in suffering or torture, is more than a seeming loss? Because we are in Christ, we know what Jim Elliott would be thinking about the loss of his life. It was worth it. 
And what we don't see in the obituary is the story of how Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, helped lead men like Min K to faith and then discipled them and discipled him to be a pastor. She taught him scripture and even wrote sermons for him, teaching him how to preach and pastor his people. So you can't tell me that this is a real loss. This is not a loss, but an eternal gain. This is no more a loss than really the cross of Christ. Church, we have to be reminded that it is in the suffering of cross that we find freedom from the penalty of sin. It is in the suffering of Christ that we find our true salvation. It was in the suffering of Jim's loss of life, though he never saw the Wudani people come to faith, that thousands and thousands of people heard the gospel and many were saved. Just like the saints of the Old Testament who never saw their reward, neither did Jim Elliot. However, his faith led him to believe that the reward was coming and worth his life. Just like the outcome of seemingly victorious faith points to something greater, so does our seeming losses. How are you looking at your suffering, your losses, in, as the result of your faith? Are you angry at God for allowing bad things to happen? Or are you seeing that God uses your suffering, he uses your pain, your hard decisions, as a means to tell a bigger story of, of redemption only found in Jesus? Church, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid to share your faith. Do not be afraid to go. Do not be afraid to lose the things that this world has to offer. Do not be afraid of the darkness that surrounds our community. Yes, it may cost you something to share Jesus and live Jesus among a broken community, but is it not worth the cost? In our community, most likely exists another Minkei. He may be violently opposed to the church right now, maybe directly against Redeemer. Who knows? He may not be the neighbor you want to live next to right now. He may not be the guy you want your kids around right now. But keep in mind, neither was the Apostle Paul. Before he was the greatest apostle, he was a murderer of Christians. It may be your enduring faithfulness that God uses to turn the violent minkays of our community into the courageous apostle Paul's of faith. Consider the count again, the cost of your faith. Is it worth it? Yes. And keep in mind, whatever the outcome of your faith may be, it is pointing us to something greater. And we see this in 39 and 40. A commendable faith is about the guarantor of our salvation. He says this, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. For all these Old Testament saints, all their victories, all their overcoming, all their torture that they received, all their suffering, never seemed to really pay off. They didn't get what was promised in their lifetime. Jesus didn't show up on the scene in the Old Testament to the victories declaring that he's now the king of Israel. He didn't show up amidst their torture, their suffering, saying, I have come to set you free. All the faithful saints of the old, they moved forward in life knowing the promise was heading towards something greater, hoping that one day they would rise to new life and receive ultimately what was promised by God. 
The faith of those in the Old Testament was not a selfish faith. They didn't claim that it was just their own. They knew that their faith would carry on to believers beyond them. The prophets of old were serving not themselves, but others. We hear this from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. He says this concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into angels, which angels long to look. This Hebrew Christian audience to whom this letter is written faced intense persecution. These words of commendation only provided a comfort given by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. These Hebrew Christians can now say, my faith is not my own. My experiences and sufferings, they are not my own. Those before me were serving me so that I might have confidence to live for Christ. Their faith is my faith. It is our faith. And just as the saints of old were not serving themselves, but those in the New Testament, so those in the New Testament were not serving themselves, but even us who sit here 2,000 years on the other side of the cross of Christ. And the same will be for us to the next generation. The faith we have is not ours alone, but for God's people for all time. We are in this together, even if time or location, experience, victory, suffering, death separates us. We are all in Christ. No generation, no person in the Bible, no place on the planet can claim the faith that they have is theirs alone. We are part of a much bigger family. Do you live your life of faith in Christ in such a way that it serves those around you or even those after you? Or do you see your faith as a personal to myself sort of faith? Maybe ask yourself, what needs to change in your life so that you can be seen by the next generation as a faithful saint who humbly served them through faithful obedience to make disciples? Our faith is not grounded in the need really to see the physical, though there is evidence. Our faith is not grounded in needing to have lived 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, seeing Jesus face to face. Our faith is not grounded in probabilities or chance. Our faith is not grounded in the one true, or our faith is grounded in the one true authority, and that is God's word. And God's word, it's authority. It gives us the guarantee our faith is real. Our faith is living. It's active. It's taking us home. Is your faith grounded in the word of God these days? Or is it grounded in other things? If the world were to read your online status or read the dialogues, would they recognize that you're grounded in God's word? Or would they read or see that your faith is grounded in other things that have no real eternal value? It is God's word that commends our faith. No matter which side of the cross or what side of history you reside, no matter if you come from a scandalous background or your outcomes of faith seem to be determined categorically as wins or losses to the world standards, it is God's word that commends our faith regardless. And that is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We all look for approval in many things in life. 
But God's word is showing us we need to not look to the world for approval, but rather be commended or approved by our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Is your life a life that is measured by and looking for the world's approval, looking for the likes and the shares on social media? Or is your life centered on being approved as a workman in God's kingdom? What might need to change in your life today to be considered a workman approved by God? Take confidence in God's word, church. It was the word that existed before all creation. And then it was the word that was spoken into nothingness that created something out of nothing ex nihilio. It was the word of God that came down and dwelt among us, being like us in every way, yet without sin. It was the word of God that you and I heard and believed by faith. It was the word of God that sustains you and me every single day, that calls us into the lunacy of being in community with people who are seemingly scandalous and to do things that are seemingly foolish. It is the word that guarantees us of our eternal home among our God and King to whom with all the faithful saints for all time, we will sing like Deborah and Barak, a song of unending praise and worship to our victorious suffering servant and savior, Jesus Christ, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Church, we have a greater heritage. We have a greater reward. And it is ours together. Charles Wesley wrote, And now by faith we join our hands with those that went before and greet the blood-sprinkled bands on the eternal shore.